created live on Fireside. The following program was recorded live on Fireside Chat. If you'd like to participate in these chats, join us at firesidechat.com slash scottmonty. Do you remember the first person who inspired you? Maybe they didn't inspire you to eventually land in the career that you're in or to take your biggest risk, but they did something that was important to you at the time. They got you excited about something and they helped you believe in yourself. It could have been a teacher, a neighbor, a parent, some authority figure who, for you, was a leader. And that's the thing about leadership and inspiration. Sometimes we don't realize that we're always inspiring someone. When you're a leader, and remember, leaders come in all forms, whether we're responsible for a division of a multinational corporation, or leading a four-person startup, or even running a family meeting. When you're a leader, all eyes are on you. And rather than crumble under pressure, this is your opportunity to let your values shine through. Show people who you are, what you believe in, and why you care. In turn, it'll make them bring their best selves to the team as well. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. Thank you for considering this show worthy of your time. I know your time is limited, and it's my hope that we provide the quality of conversation that keeps you coming back episode after episode. We do these shows live each week on Fireside Chat, and then we package them up as a podcast for listening later. The bonus, of course, if you're listening live, is you have the opportunity to jump in and ask questions. Feel free to listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, subscribe to my Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly write about these topics at TimelessTimely.com. This week's topic, Inspiration. If being a leader means everyone is watching you, Chris Voss is no stranger to that world. Chris is a serial entrepreneur who got his start early. 
he founded his first company at 18. In 1992, with a mere $2,000, he started his first multi-million dollar producing company that ran for over 13 years. A year later, with $4,000, he started his second multi-million dollar company that still operates today. After that, he oversaw three companies simultaneously while building and investing in 22 different companies. Inspiring stuff. With an audience of over 300,000, Chris has hosted his own show, The Chris Voss Show Podcast, on YouTube and everywhere you get your podcasts for years. And based on the interviews he's done with hundreds of leaders, Chris has written Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. Chris, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Scott, thanks for having me. That was a beautiful opening, by the way. Thank you. I'm I'm, I'm touched. Well, good. Well, I hope I inspired you. Yes. So you see how I, that works? I'm definitely inspired. <laughs> yes. I'm fired up here on this uh, Wednesday morning, I think it is. Excellent. Excellent. So why don't we go back to the beginning? Who's the first person you remember inspiring you in some way? Uh, I would say that's a really great question as they stall. Uh, I would say that would be my grandfather. Tell me about him. Uh, well, uh, grandfathers are usually related to us because, uh, there, uh, we're descendants of them, uh, usually for our fathers. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, my, my father, uh, my grandfather was a, uh, salted earth man. He was definitely an alpha male and, he was uh, a rock. Uh, he built, you know, he he built two of his homes. Him and his family they they built their own home. <laughs> uh, he worked for the Union Pacific Railroad. He was a welder and an engineer with the railroad. And he, you know, after he passed, I recovered all of his manuals on the old Union Pacific Railroad stuff. Wow! And uh, he was a family man. He was a tough man tough as nails, but he was also kind and loving. And he took time to teach us a lot of stuff. And after he was forced to retire after a series of heart attacks, um, he opened a welding shop in his garage and taught us about welding and just about everything you could that was tactile and were pretty much worked up until the day he passed. And, uh, but he was a man who taught us everything. He, he took us fishing. He took us camping. He, he taught us stuff that seems like, uh, I don't know if a lot of kids learn these days. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, boy, I mean, the, the, the value of manual labor, that'll really uh, teach you something about, you know, not only uh, the, the materials themselves, but in the time that you put into it, the time you spend. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, He taught us to be men. He taught us to be men, you know. He mm. was tough. He'd suck it up. If you fell down, he went fishing, and you were expected to always, you know, learn the lesson from him, but you were expected to carry your load. Uh, whether it was camping, fishing, or doing anything. Uh, he even taught us acetylene welding. <laughs> wow. Which is kind of crazy considering how young we were. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, that, that traditional view of uh, masculinity uh, has mm -hmm. to do with, uh, with, with being tough. And yet, you know, in your book, 
beacons of leadership, inspiring lessons of success in business and innovation. You you talk about some setbacks, and I think something that we've seen of late of leaders is the power of uh, vulnerability and uh, transparency in helping people understand who we authentically are as people. It kind of goes against the grain of that suck-it-up toughness masculinity uh, teachings that our grandfathers may have taught us. Definitely. It's a, it's a world where we've had to kind of learn to balance uh, between the yin and the yang of of our effeminate side and our masculine side and uh, emotions and not having emotions and still being a rock, but, but still being able to uh, have empathy. And uh, a lot of leaders have, have I, I don't know if they've really struggled. I've never seen the studies on it, but I, I think a lot of leaders do struggle with it, especially male leaders maybe that grew up in the era that I did because you know, a lot of the millennial generation that came in, you know, and the Gen Zers, they've, they're looking for kind of a different attitude towards work and environments and office and, and success. And they're not just looking for, well, I just want to work hard, you know, for 40 or 40 hours a week and tough it out. They're looking for, you know, purpose in their work or some sort of life mission. And I know a lot of people my age have struggled with those two generations that how do we, how do we communicate to them? How do we get through? How do we get work done with their sort of attitudes that are very different than ours? So, yeah, it's been, it's an interesting thing that we have to balance. And of course, you know, hopefully we're evolving. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. The jury's still out on that one. <laughs> Every day, just a little bit more. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you can't see it when you're so close to it, but you step back and, you know, you look over the, the course of, uh, multi, uh, multiple decades or multiple years and you see, well, actually, you know, I have grown a little bit or we have advanced as a, a society a bit. So, um, now you've been an entrepreneur since the age of 18. What mm-hmm. what led you in in that direction in the first place? It was kind of an accidental entrepreneur. I tell the story in the book that's uh, kind of interesting. Um, at least I thought it was interesting. I don't know if anybody else thinks it's interesting. Uh, it's but, all how you uh, package it, Chris. Package it up. It's for all us. the packaging. Well, there is there is a cover on the book. So, uh, so w- growing up, I'd work with my father. You know, I grew up in that age where your mother kicked your uh, the boys out of the house. Uh, we were two rambunctious boys, uh, kicked us out of the house and, you know, don't come home till dinner. And you played out in the world and learned stuff and built forts and adventured and played kickball and whatever in the street. Um, and, uh, so she would send us to work with my dad. My dad worked the subcontracting stucco business and I would go to work with him, especially during the summers to get out of her mom's hair. And unbeknownst to us, we didn't really, we were just helping dad, you know, dad had his stuff to do and, you know, you could go home early if you helped dad and, and, uh, you know, so you, you'd always want to get the project done. So we learned to do his work and help him do his work. And I think at one point he was paying us a little bit of money and my teens later on years later, we did that for years during the summers, helped him. And then years later, he abandoned the business and moved into white collar stuff. But he still had like, you know, the, all the tools and stuff in a shed out back. And uh, I had been working McDonald's and I it was in Utah, which is, um, there's, uh, how would you put it in Utah? It's, it's Utah. I don't know. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a highly religious state. Let's put it that way. And, and some of their outlooks on people with long hair or people that uh, are 
maybe maybe don't fit into the stereotypical mold are seen as outsiders and and could be evil and satanic and in my case i had long rocker hair and wore van halen uh t-shirts clearly i think we all know van halen is the source of all satanism from my understanding um Judas Priest, you know, Ozzy Osbourne. So, but you know, I, I clearly was not seen in in this environment up here as as the 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 great saint, uh, which which is unlike now, Scott. As you know, I'm seen as a great saint. I can um, hear the angels laugh. singing in choirs behind yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised you're not on the floor laughing. Uh, so, um, I I had this long hair, and I worked at McDonald's, and I was fairly happy. I was just trying to figure out, you know, where where's the next stage of life, and I was graduating high school. And uh, one of the managers who was deeply religious took a shine to me and my evil satanic long hair, which we all know is this is the sign of the devil. Um, it's like 1960 or something. So uh, he ended up uh, firing me over my long hair, long story short. And uh, I came home and told my dad, and I was supposed to be going to college soon. He said, what are you going to do? I go, I don't know. I just... I, I just got fired from McDonald's. He uh, and he says, "Why don't you go get the the equipment out of the storage unit? You know, I still have my contractor's things, so you can buy the concrete and lime and all that stuff that you use, and you know, and then you can you can go just run my old business of doing the thing." Well, he didn't have any clients or anything, so I said, "Yeah, screw it. I'm just a kid. I'll go do it." So I started doing it. No one told me it was entrepreneurism. No one told me I was an entrepreneur. <laughs> I don't think I knew what I was doing till 20 years later. I'm like, yeah, that was entrepreneurial crap right there. Started my own business. I was really proud to have my name in a card. I thought that was really cool. And uh, just went out and started selling it and learned to sell. And uh, it was hard. These, you know, these, if you've ever dealt with contractors who build homes and stuff, they're not the most, uh, they're not the nicest folks. They're not the most bright eyed, bushy tail folks. They're, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty seasoned if you will. And so um, started the business. And within three months, I was making $18,000 a year. I'm an 18 year old kid living at home. Uh, I think I'm rich, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so as I tell the story in the book, I actually go back to the manager, shake his hand and tell him that he's given me the greatest gift in life that he could ever have given me by firing me. And now I make a lot more than him. <laughs> Ouch. And, uh, yeah. Is, is well, the, 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 the hubris of 18-year-olds, right? I mean, it, yeah. that's great that you recognize that it was a uh, a gift. You know, I mean, you said he, he took a shine to you. And in some ways, I mean, he really set you on the path for your life. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get chills when I think of if, if he hadn't done that. And we all go through that in life. We go through these moments where we think we're at a bottom or something bad happens to us. And a large time part of the time, they're just opportunities that we need to open ourselves up to and go, you know, what, what is the opportunity that come, is, is being manifested here as opposed to, you know, maybe you lose, uh, maybe you lose something through a divorce or maybe you lose a job or whatever things, maybe, maybe, uh, life is telling you that, that there's something better for you, something greater of a good for you. Yeah. You just need to figure out what that thing is. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of a, a quote from one of my uh, most recent favorite shows, and that is Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to watch it, but um, it is a show ostensibly all about inspirational leadership. And uh, there's one scene where the 
owner of the football club, Rebecca, says, uh, you know, Ted, there's a, a famous Dutch saying about uh, about football. And he said, well, well, you better tell it to me in uh, English because I don't understand a lick of Dutch. Uh, so she says, every disadvantage has its advantages. And it's, it's the same concept there that, you know, even in negative experiences, what can we take out of it? What can we learn from it? And what can we do to actually propel ourselves forward? So... Chris, I uh, uh-huh. I want to I want to um, kind of explore with you because you 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 had this this early experience owning your own business, uh, becoming an entrepreneur, an accidental entrepreneur, I guess we could say. Um, talk to me about the first time you had to hire someone and and manage uh, someone other than running your own single solopreneur operation. I think that would probably be my vice president, my business uh, person, because I had to manage him. You know, I've been a lot of, I've been through a lot of little partnerships and practice ships with uh, starting businesses uh, after, because I realized I didn't want to work in blue collar all my life, and um, uh, it was probably my, I would probably say my business partner, and uh, we founded our first company, Silver Street Express, and when he'd brought me the idea of what he wanted to do, but he didn't know how to do it. And since I had been practicing starting little companies and trying to get little things to work, uh, he, um, he came to me and, and, uh, you know, I had to, I had to learn how to deal with a partner and also really what was an employee because he was really inept at everything, but, uh, he felt like he knew everything. I don't know if that's close to answering your question or if you want like a real employee employee. No, I mean, th- this is this is really instructive. I mean, it, it's all part of the journey. Right. And how, how old were you when you when you connected with him? Uh, we that was the most interesting thing about uh, about our story is we had become friends at 12. Uh, we've been friends at junior high, uh, high school. We were ride and die friends. Uh, and I think we started the company at 22 at least I was 22, and I think he was, you know, probably right in line with me, 21, 22. And we, uh, um, he'd had the idea because he worked for ARUP, this blood testing, uh, b- body sampling testing facility, and the couriers that uh, were running the third-party couriers that were, that were the vendors for them were really bad. And uh, he said, you know, I think we can get them to give us business. So it was kind of one of those inside turn the business our way jobs. And uh, but bringing him on board was really hard because uh, there had to be a bit of a power struggle of of who was going to run the company and a real identification of who was in charge and who wasn't. Um, And up until then, we'd had, you know, just a close bonding friendship. And we were friends for, in the end, 22 years and business partners for 13 and uh he you know he had a lot of ideas that he didn't understand business you know he he fought me on uh the billables where we put the billables every two weeks instead of every 30 days he fought me he just fought me on everything um and so you know trying to lay that foundation and and uh get him to understand who was boss and finally i had to go to him and say look it's i have business experience you don't. It's either my way or the highway, and I'm the CEO of this company, or we can just kill this baby now because I'm not going to get five, ten years down from the road and sit and fight you the whole way, 
that one of us leads, the other one follows. So, um, that must have been a hard that. conversation to have. It was for him. I think, I think the challenge for him was it was his idea. It was his company that was, uh, he was working for as just a lowly employee. And, and so he felt like, you know, he should run the thing. But I think it's a good lesson for people who step into partnerships with people and realize that you need a strong leader and someone with experience just because it's some, you know, person's idea doesn't mean they should be the CEO. Um, you know, even, even Facebook struggled with, uh, Zuckerberg as a CEO. And, and I think finally at the behest of the VCs, he, he had to go put himself into some training and classes or coaching to be a better CEO because uh, they were about ready to throw him in his ear at one point. Oh, so you, you mean he's already done that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that or he just owns enough stock to where he could do whatever he wants. So. <laughs> Um, so, well, well, that's, that's interesting. Cause I mean, it sounds like there's a, there's a power dynamic. There's a bit of a struggle here going on. It's a, it's a realization for the both of you that, you know, in addition to your friendship, you need to suddenly take on these new roles. And in, in doing so, did you, did you feel like either one of you inspired the other? Um, I think I did. Um, I, I was, I was, uh, I loved the idea and, and I've been practicing starting little companies for a while. I studied, I talk in the book about how early on with the company that I accidentally created, I realized that I didn't want to be in blue collar a lot. And so I started reading Harvard Business Review and I pulled out of college as I talk about in the book. Um, you know, I was a poor kid, stupid kid. Uh, I always tell people it's kind of funny and they look at me quizzically when I say it, but I was a kid who was smart enough to know that I was dumb as a rock. And I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, I knew yeah. I was a dumb kid and I knew I needed to go learn some stuff. And so I started ordering Harvard Business Review uh, lessons and their magazine and courses and since I'd quit out of college to work on this business thing, I'd, uh, I'd realized that I needed to educate myself in a way that was important to business. And I realized also that I wanted to be CEO of a major company, you know, have hundreds of thousands of employees someday. And I realized the need to lay the foundation for that prep work, but I wasn't excited to go to college and learn about, you know, history, although history is incredibly valuable. Um, for what I was trying to do at that time and, and pull off with the means that I had, uh, you know, I had a Pell grant to go to college and that's how I got into college. So, uh, I wasn't getting to Harvard or, you know, some Ivy league school anytime soon, but so I started studying really hard to be the CEO of my own company. I, I read Forbes, Fortune, Success Magazine back in the day. And this is the old Forbes and Fortune, you know, that used to be like a doorstop, like a phone book. Do you remember that? I remember those, yeah. Yeah, before Malcolm Jr. took it over, what his name is. Um, but, uh, and I studied everything I could about business, business theory, uh, basically preparing myself to be a, a CEO of a company. And so I think I exhibit a lot of enthusiasm and, uh, you know, culture was a very big part of, of how we set forth when we started hiring employees and started doing stuff. Um, it was maddening because I think we started our first company and then within a year and a half, we started our second company, Park Place Mortgage. 
And uh, so within a year and a half, I was running two companies at the same time and just scaling like just wow. insanity. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. But I think what, what you've uh, outlined there in terms of, um, you know, realizing at least being smart enough to realize that you don't know it all um, is is the incredible importance of self-awareness as a leadership trait. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, there are so many people who lack that ability to truly understand who they are, what their limitations are, et cetera, um, and, and kind of show up as leaders, like hand out, you know, expecting everything that goes along with the title. And it's really not about title. It's not about um, expectations. It's, it's really about what you bring to the table, what you're aware of, who else you bring to the table with you, because leadership is, it's a team sport. You can't lead without having people follow, but you also, it's not a forced march either. Right. I mean, yeah. you need to inspire people to come along with you. So how how have you viewed the difference there uh, in in terms of leadership by fiat, by command versus leadership by inspiration? What, what are some of the, the traits that get you there? So I talk about this in the book and I really identify two different types of uh, people who oversee other people. And I really identify them just in the simplest format of a leader or a manager. And a, a leader is someone in my book who takes someone to the next level, who can inspire people, who can create a vision, communicate that vision, sell that vision, and sell it with a passion that really fires up the internals of, of people inside them. It gets them to buy into that vision. You know, uh, Steve Jobs was constantly quoted as having or referred to as having the ability to uh, have people suspend, um, live in a distortion reality field. Uh, but he could inspire people to move mountains for him. He could inspire consumers to buy his products in mass. And still to this day, they addictively buy his products, probably in, in some of that image that he originally laid down. Um, and, and, and so I set down in the book what I felt were my top five principles of leadership. Uh, if, you know, if I was to design a true leader, a, a leader who inspires people to move mountains, because you can hold a gun to someone's head and say, do your job or you get fired or else, you know, basically. But a true leader is somebody who gets people fired up, who gets them passionate, who infects them with that passion and ideas and takes them to the next level where the people go, we're going wherever this guy goes and we're going to move mountains and do whatever it takes because this guy, this guy fires us up. Uh, and I was pretty, you know, you talked about how uh, being insightful to oneself uh, and having insight in what people need to do. One thing I was really um, honored by was I ran this book by a few of my uh, leader friends in the military. And they went, oh, my God, you 90%, you nailed 90% of what the military sees as top leadership. And when you really think about the military, the military isn't just your job. They're asking you to die for your country. They're asking you to die for a cause. Put your life on the line. Stand in the way of harm uh, with the ultimate price. Uh, and they inspire you to do so with, with all the different features. And so I was really honored by that. And one of the systems they have in place that I – I tried to cram into the book, but we couldn't do it justice, and it may be in the future. But they have a principle called be no do. Be no 
do. And if you get a chance to Google that, I Google it. But uh, basically, part of the principle about being a leader is knowing what your weak spots are and working on those weak spots so that you can balance out all of your strengths. Uh, but I talk about five of the top things in my book. Number one for me is passion. If you don't have a passion as a leader, if you can't inspire passion in other people, you fail from the get-go. You're just a boring manager telling people to push around tiles and stuff. Sorry if you're a boring manager. My bad. Uh, vision and innovation is the second one. You have to be a visionary. People embrace visions, uh, whether they're moonshots like John F. Kennedy saying, we're going to the moon and we don't know how. Um, I can't find this quote, but someone I had heard said that, said that when Kennedy was meeting with somebody in, in their staff, um, they said, what do we need, what do we need to do to get to the moon? How do we beat the Russians? And, and the person said, we just have to decide to do it. And he's like, it's really that simple. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's that simple. So he came out and did the moonshot. You know, you've got Elon Musk saying, we need to go to Mars. These sort of moonshot things inspire people because they make people dream and vision. People watch Star Trek and they used to dream and envision. What if we could have a communication device in our hand that we could flip open and talk to people? Wow. If only that could become something cool. Um, number three was integrity and trust. This is important. Uh, number four, communication and selling because you can have a great passion, a great vision, great integrity, but if you can't communicate it, <laughs> who cares, right? And number five, character. So I touch on these in the book and try and lay a foundation for what I think really extraordinary leadership is, inspiring leadership, if you will. That's fantastic. So passion, vision, integrity, communication, and character. There you go. These are these are exactly uh, some of the topics we cover right here on the show. So I'm uh, I'm glad that you know we're we're kind of pointing in the same direction. We have the same north star yeah. here. And what was interesting was my like my military people. They they said those top five. You nailed ninety percent of what we teach leaders in the military. I'm like wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it, it really isn't rocket surgery uh, when it comes down to it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's fantastic. So um, let's let's explore a little bit. Uh, there, there's some concepts in here in, in the leadership toolbox that you leave us with that I think are uh, really interesting. Talk about the crazy Ivan. What's the crazy Ivan? <laughs> the crazy Ivan. Yeah, this is funny, actually, because we're working on we're taking the leadership toolbox and, and a few of the principles that in here and we're we're killing off a bunch of my stories and putting in a second book that should be out on the 15th. Um, the title is uh, undetermined, but it's going to take and expand on some of the leadership toolbox. The crazy Ivan um, I got from, uh, uh, I want to say the Russian house, but that's not it. Red, Red October, both great Sean Connery movies. Um, and in the Red October, if you remember uh, the, one of the Russian uh, submarine captains would always turn to after starboard. I think it was, if I have my boat terms right, um, every at the bottom of every hour, at the top of every hour to check his six, to look behind him to see if there was a sub sneaking up behind him. And it was a great uh, thing to check behind you and, and see, uh, you know, kind of get an idea of uh, where you've been and also to check and see if, uh, you know, I think was failing. And so I used to do the crazy Ivan where I'd sit down with my staff or board or 
vice president or whatever sort of problem we were trying to fix. And we do the crazy Ivan where we'd, where we'd look back and go, okay, what, what are we doing? Are we, are we screwing this up? Do we, do we have it? Do we have it right? Do we, do we know where we're going? Have we learned the lessons of the past? And we'd, we basically, um, do that look back and check back to make sure that, you know, we weren't going off, uh, the arc of the course wrong. You know, you can, when you set a course on a ship, you go, Hey, we're going over there. And as a lot of people talk about, it, I think Anthony Robbins is a big proponent of this is for a long, for much of the course, you are off course. You know, you're constantly correcting and overcorrecting and, you know, you're zigzagging basically. If you really look at the course of a ship, although I don't know these new GPS precision tankers, maybe, maybe they go direct or something. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, so looking back, you can check yourself and say, oh, you know, are we on course? Are we going the right way? And sometimes that can give you an alignment to um, what's going on. So I, I always love the crazy eye of and looking back and and uh, checking yourself, if you yeah. will. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it's a, it's a great concept because when you do this transparently with your team, you know, hey, we're making this move, we're taking this step, we want to uh, kind of look at where we are, I think it sends a message to people that, um, there are uncertainties out there yeah. and even the best leaders, uh, you know, they, they have a North star, they have a vision for where they want to go, but it's not always a straight line. And knowing that you have to course correct, that you do make errors along the way and that you need to be self-aware, self-reflective and to take these steps to ensure you're still, um, progressing in the direction and at the speed you wish. Sometimes it means doubling back. So I, I think it's a, a powerful, powerful lesson. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good to check where you're going, see if, you know, it, the one of the problems I've always had with companies and businesses is people get this, get this, I would walk into different departments and go, why do you do things this way? This makes no sense. They'd be like, I don't know. We're always taught to do it this way. Yeah. You know? And and so the crazy Ivan helps you kind of look back and go, why are we doing things this way? Does this make any sense? Yeah. You know, cause things change. Markets change. Environments change. Product demand changes. Consumers change. You know, you've, you've got to be able to check your six and, and go, are, are we on the right course of our trajectory? Cause part of the trajectory is not just moving forward, but what's left behind you. And, and you've got to be able to, you know, it's, it's part of that whole adjustment. I mean, imagine a rocket ship has some sort of feature to that where, you know, it's not only got the blast behind it and checking its base, but also checking its a forward aft to, to see if it's steering in the right way, but yeah. they're steering from all different positions of the ship. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great analogy. Now, uh, similarly, I mean, you, you were, or are, I should say a serial entrepreneur and, and over the, 35 plus years you've been in business, you, you must have seen some patterns emerge and, and you can almost kind of, uh, do some of these things as, as second nature. Um, but, but what happens when something that has functioned in the past stops working? You know, when you think you're doing your best and you're putting all the best principles, uh, to the fore and, and suddenly it doesn't work anymore. Can you talk a little bit about the wisdom of Coach John Wooden and what he would uh, recommend of his team when they seem to be stumbling? This is one of the great things, and I think I got it originally from 
Tony Robbins or one of the other speakers, but it's a great story and it's, it's in the public domain. But, uh, Coach Wooden was, a, was an incredible basketball coach. If anybody, you know, if you don't know who he is, you should check him out. Said he is, I think he had 12 principles or 18 principles of leadership, um, or success. He's got that, that um, pyramid of success that Ted Lasso actually puts up on his wall and Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah, the pyramid of success. You definitely want to check that out. So, um, but John Wooden, you know, you, you play for John Wooden and, you know, a basketball player would run down the court and do, you know, one of those crazy, beautiful Michael Jordan type layups, right? Or he, you know, shoot from the three, the three point line, a half court or whatever. And, but they would struggle with the basics. You know, I think Shaq wasn't it Shaq who struggled at the free throw line. He could do all sorts of beautiful stuff, but. He couldn't throw in a free throw to save his life sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what he, he would constantly teach people, especially when they tried to get too f- uh, finessey or artsy, is stick with the basics. Get back to the basics. Let me see you work. I don't know what they call it, but the we used to call it the horse when we were kids. Remember playing horse with the basketball? You no, go sure. around the the keys there. I think they're called. Um, and so you we work the keys, and he would teach people. Okay, let's let's work the keys. Let let me see how you can free throw. Let's do the basics. And so a lot of times that happens in our businesses. You know, we get a little comfortable, we get a little lazy, we get a little fat. We're out eating, you know, uh, enjoying, you know, the luxuries of our of our hard work that maybe we spent years building a company, and we start cutting the corners, and we start taking our eye off the ball, and. And then suddenly, you know, things stop working. Either the market changes, consumer changes, or some sort of other effect happens. I mean, some sometimes things are just working fine, and and then mysteriously, you're like, "Why are we bleeding money?" And then you got to go find where the ship's got a hole in it, and you're like, Ugh. "So we got to figure out where this hole is." Or worse, you know, that where the hole is, you know, it suddenly uh, departments become unprofitable, and it's just sucking about massive amounts of money. And you're like, if we don't fix this, this thing's going to take the ship. Uh, so we got to figure out how to, you know, plug the Titanic. And uh, so getting back to basics, a lot of the time I would sit down with myself. Okay, what am I doing that I've finessed something? And sometimes I may have over-innovated something. You know, I'm a tweaker. So what I'll do is I'll go with my little wrench and I'll be like, okay, let's innovate this. Let's turn this knob a little bit to a quarter more let's see what that does and i'll turn this knob a little bit and i'll turn that and i'll tweak this and let's you know yeah sometimes i get a little too inventive for my own good as a as a uh, entrepreneur as an innovator and then suddenly things don't work and you'd be like whoa wait okay so what do we tweak what do we do and that's kind of where the crazy ivan too comes in <laughs> like what do we what do we do what what happened where do we what which part did we tweak and, and where do we go off the rails? And, you know, a lot of times it was laziness. Like I would quit working so hard or I would mm. quit focusing on certain things or I'd take my eye off the books. You know, I quit looking at, or I'm like, ah, we're making a ton of money. I don't, you know, be watching what's going on over there. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what, what's going on in this department? You know, I remember yeah. one time we had one of, uh, uh, one of my assi- assistant uh, executive secretaries, um, who worked with my vice president and I thought he was overseeing her. Well, one day she goes out and takes, tw- you know, the, I think we had like $25,000 in, in office max, uh, credits. 
and she decides to buy a whole year's worth of inf- uh, office supplies just because they were on sale. <laughs> wow. Hey, maybe you need to applaud her entrepreneurial spirit there, but hey, have you got the storage for it? We had the storage, but the problem was, is the, you know, we're paying, you know, the interest rates on these cards. And I was a big believer in, in JIT inventory, just in time inventory. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, have an extra copier thing, you know, but, uh, I mean, we had like eight of these, you know, giant mortgage copiers that are just humming 24 seven almost, or at least when we're in the office. Uh, and then, you know, they go through a lot of ink cartridges back in the day, but, uh, you know, it was just extraordinary, you know, and you just, you just go, Hey man, we need to not do that anymore and figure out how to get out of it. But, uh, you know, stuff like that, you just suddenly, you know, you can, the best laid plans and everything can be working for sometimes years. I write about that in the book. I, there's a lot of uh, times we look at buying out other companies, taking over companies that were about into bankruptcy because the entrepreneur had never had either it had worked for a year or two or it worked for a few months when they started. And then they just ran that model right into the bankruptcy court or, you know, sometimes it worked for 10 years and then one day they woke up and things didn't work anymore. You know, we've yeah. seen a lot of that Kodak yeah. Polaroid, you name it. There's a whole, there's yeah. a whole junkyard. In it, it happens. It happens. So, um, you know, one of these um, steps that you talk about actually would come in uh, quite helpful. Your, your your employees' purchase of office supplies would come in helpful because you talk about needing a yellow pad for a certain exercise. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? So one of the ways they used to really innovate, and some of it tied into burnout, a lot of entrepreneurs go through burnout. And uh, one of the problems is the the uh, – locked in the box thinking that we talk, we think about where we go, well, you know, just I'll take a vacation once a year or, you know, twice a year, you know, a lot of people like to go to Disneyland with the kids or something. The problem is a lot of entrepreneurs burn out because 24 seven, they think about their business. I used to dream about the things I do the next day and people I had to fire the next day, uh, meetings I would have, I'd literally dream about them the night before. Like if I ever had a dream that wasn't about business, it was like, Oh my God. Wow. That was so refreshing, which was almost nearly uh, rare. So, uh, doing like little weekend jaunts or getting away. And part of the problem that we have when we're trying to innovate our businesses, especially as entrepreneurs or CEOs is we're so deep in the minutia. We're so deep in everything. And when you're in the office, you know, you've got everybody at you pulling your tailcoats going, you know, Hey, you know, uh, you know, accounting's on fire, processing is on fire, you know, Hey, can you tell me, can you counsel me on my marriage? You know, being a CEO is a lot of fun. You get, you get to wear every hat that's available. And so, um, when you need to innovate something or something's not working, you know, it started bleeding out, like we talked about before, and you need to re-innovate something, the best way to do it is to get out of your office, get out of your head, get out of your environment, get out of your home, take a weekend trip, get a, uh, what do they call them, the bre- better breakfast. And it, it's helpful if you can go someplace that isn't Vegas. <laughs> yeah. You want to you go someplace that's like a retreat. Reflective, maybe, yeah. Yeah, reflective. Some, you know, go get a cabin in Montana. Just don't 
start, you know, mailing stuff and writing your own, uh, whatever it was, uh, that he, the Ted Kadis, he wrote. Um, but, but sit down with the yellow pad. And I still love this, even though we live in a digital world. The problem with the digital world is you got all the notifications and everybody's texting you and, Oh, what's on Facebook? Turn all that stuff off. And what I used to like to do is I either go on a trip with uh, either a girlfriend or my business partner on a weekend, John. And we just go away wherever we could drive to. And being locked in the car is pretty nice. In fact, back in the older days, the old days, Scott, um, you didn't know. have cell phone service between like Vegas and, and Utah and certain places. So you kind of were forced to either listen to the radio or look at your yellow pad. And so I like a yellow pad because it opens up your mind's eye and um, you start thinking about stuff. And so what I would do is I'd go on a drive and I'd have uh, either my girlfriend or my business partner drive and I'd sit there with the yellow pad and I'd just look at it. And I'd look out the window and I'd just think about stuff. And I'd think about whatever the business process I was trying to resolve or innovate with my business or re-innovate. And hard thing too is if you've been an innovator like me where you've innovated your processes multiple times it's hard to get out of it because you're the one who built it so you think it's great but it's not working anymore for some reason so being able to sit down with it and just start writing okay well why do i do things this way and that's one of the ones one of the ways i always innovated i'd be like why do we do things this way and then my brain would be like well you're the idiot who designed it and i'd be like but why? And so I deconstruct the whole process of whatever that department was or whatever that function was or, you know, whatever, whatever sort of factory thing was getting from point A to B. And I deconstruct it. Um, sometimes there were times where I'm like, is there a better way to build this? And there wasn't. And you just go, well, Okay, well, there you go. But if it was something that was bleeding out or costing you money, you'd have to try and figure out a way to take out steps or streamline or innovate or how can we cut costs? Uh, where do we have too many steps in the process? And that really helps you get out of, out of your head, out of your, out of your environment. And I, I had my most greatest innovations trapped in that car in some desert highway out in the middle of nowhere with no signal and, Sometimes it would just be sitting out on the back porch of uh, some log, uh, you know, uh, bed and breakfast in Jackson Hole, you know, out there in the sticks, not in the city. Um, sometimes Heber. Sometimes I go to different dinners at, at, at uh, you know, nice restaurants that were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, just to, just to think about stuff. Yeah. But just looking at that yellow pad forces you to fill it up. And uh, put something down. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a story of being surrounded by um, inspirational things, and that inspirational thing could be, a, you know, a, a wonderful vista out the window or in a, in the mountains. Um, it could be in in a restaurant. It could be just the, a yellow pad as a refreshing um, vision in front of you instead of a, a glowing screen. Um, and, and I mean, a lot of what you, you're talking about here, Chris, it sounds like it's, um, an individual exercise in, uh, self-reflection and, and thinking and, and lack of distractions. How do you, how do you take those moments and perhaps get inspiration from other people in, in those circumstances? 
Um, I'm not really sure that your brain wanders to a lot of different things and your reticular activating system when you start asking questions is really important because a lot of times it'll cook stuff. You know, we've all had times where, you know, maybe we've gone to bed with a question and we're like, oh, geez, how am I going to fix this issue or that issue? And you wake up the next morning and your subconscious mind hands it to you and goes, here's the answer. And you're like, holy crap, that was the answer I was looking for. A lot of times our subconscious brain is is working on those things. And if we ask the questions, then we tend to get answers. They may not be immediate. Maybe you need to let the brain cook on stuff. And sometimes that that uh, thinking about maybe people that inspire you or people that motivate you can can kind of give you that added juice or drive you. Like my my favorite hero is Bobby Kennedy in this Ripples of Hope speech. And so sometimes if I'm just kind of looking for some sort of inspiration, I'll go to inspirational people like you mentioned, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use them to give me a little bit of fire and juice. And, and I'll be like, yeah, Bobby Kennedy said I can do it and I can send forth ripples of hope. And, and so, okay, so what are my ripples of hope? And asking those questions, you know, a lot of my staff would have a hard time with the yellow pad innovation um, thing. They'd be like, I don't know what they do. And they get scared. And I just be like, write, write something down, write anything down, do a doodle, you know, do, do just write your name or something. Yeah. Just and sometimes just cueing that and juicing that, giving it that little that little thing, your your mind starts to go, well, uh, there's a bunch of lines here. We should figure out and just start write write down some stupid stuff. You know, even if it's nonsensical. Like, what if we did this? Like what if we what if we took the processing department and we put it in space on the space shuttle and then we shipped the paper up by rockets and it's stupid. And it's, it's moronic, but sometimes you get your best ideas out of something like that. You're like, well, that's kind of moonshotty, but actually, what if we did this? And then you, then you start going through stuff, but being locked in that thing, I think is even more important now today because we, we got too many bells and whistles. We got too many people pulling on our coattails and text messages. And I think this is why a lot of people do retreats, but a lot of times with business retreats, you're going there and there's kind of an agenda and there's there's something very free thinking about on the road in the middle of nowhere. Your mind really gets a chance to wander and be creative. It really goes to a place if you let it, you turn off all the, the radio and everything. You know, sometimes sometimes it's the it's the sometimes there's a thing where you think about something else and where your brain is cooking on something. So I'll look at buildings as you're passing by and you're like, who put that there? Like you ever drive by a building in some desert Vista and you're just like, who the hell built a house out in the middle of here? Like what, what motivated them to do that? And sometimes just processing these different thoughts where you're not really thinking about stuff can help you come with those ideas. But asking the question is super important. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny. I mean, everybody comes to, um, to, to realization and inspiration in, in a different way. Um, some people work well uh, visually. Other people work well with words. Uh, some people, you know, work well asking questions, bouncing things off of each other. So I think just um, encouraging people to get out of the reality that they're in and kind of suspend disbelief, uh, as you, you mentioned there, that's, uh, that's very helpful. Um, yeah. 
Chris, I want to I want to close uh, looking at an interesting phrase that I found in your book. Uh, I, I wondered if you might expand upon it a little bit. Uh, you say you, there's a, a, a an expression you started using, uh, and it was "look the dragon in the teeth." What does that mean? <laughs> so, looking the dragon in the teeth, uh, there were times in our business where we would have to make decisions. And, uh, you know, sometimes they were decisions where we would have to spend a lot of money. We'd have to make an investment or we'd have to, uh, you know, acquire something. And so what we would do is we would sit down and we would go, why are we doing this? And why is it important? Uh, sometimes it was, you know, advancing the next scale of our business. Sometimes it was just, you know, maybe spending money on incredible assets, buying a new office, buying new copiers. Uh, you know, some sort of an either internal or external investment that, you know, was big enough to break the bank a little bit or put some pressure on you if it failed and make you go, okay, let's, let's do a walkthrough on this. And so looking the drag in the teeth for me was, was always about, we'd sit down with our staff or our board or my vice president and we'd be like, okay, so what can fail here? Okay, we're gonna buy this business. We're gonna acquire this company. We're gonna we're gonna move offices, and we're gonna expand to something that's double or triple our size. Um, how can this go really wrong, especially for the money that we're gonna be spending that we're not spending now? Uh, how can this? How can we end up regretting this? And then how can we avoid uh, regretting this? And how can we mitigate? If something does go wrong, how can we mitigate those losses or mitigate those challenges and, and survive them? Um, and a lot of people, you know, they, they do stuff in business or entrepreneurs that do stuff in business that, that end up failing and sometimes costing them the whole kit and caboodle. You know, they're like, let's build out the ship and, and build a second deck. And, and, uh, it turns out that that second deck isn't watertight. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we would sit down and, and, and do the, do the look at it and go, okay, are we willing to live with the dragon's teeth? If, if we get bit by the dragon or caught in its teeth, can we live with it? Can we figure out a way to mitigate our damages and, and make it work for us? And so, uh, that actually helped us make better decisions too. Because when you can look the dragon in the teeth and you can see the good, the bad and the ugly, and you can decide that you could probably live with it or mitigate it or, it's not going to kill you, then that, then you can move forward. And if you do have things start to go off the rails a little bit on you or the dragon starts uh, chewing on you a little bit, you can go, okay, well, we knew what our, our countermeasures were going to be for this. So let's employ them and, uh, and make sure that, it, you know, if we did make a bad decision, how can we cut our losses or how can we mitigate them? to where it's not going to take the whole ship. You know, there was sometimes stuff where we acquired businesses or we took on partners for different little businesses that we acquired. And sometimes we knew, we knew what our, our countermeasures was going to be. And we had to go, yeah, just kill this thing. It's young enough and early enough. And we're seeing bad sides. Let's just kill it. Um, you know, just knowing what our countermeasures were made us more agile. That's great. That's great. Well, um, you know, I, I, I love the uh, the connection there etymologically between Dragon's Teeth, which was actually a World War II uh, device, 
the oh. the Germans actually would lay down uh, these fortifications, a kind of a square pyramidal fortification uh, made of reinforced concrete, and they'd lay them down in in rows and fields to slow the advance of uh, enemy artillery. And mm. going back even further in Greek mythology, uh, Prince Cadmus, the Phoenician prince. And Jason of uh, Jason and the Golden Fleece, they would plant dragon's teeth. And when dragon's teeth were planted in ancient mythology, uh, what would spring from them, what would grow from them were fully armed warriors. So, you know, thinking about that in the context of you looking in, uh, looking at the dragon's teeth, um, or looking the dragon in the teeth, I should say. Um, I, I just love the, the connotations and connections there uh, in terms of defensiveness and uh, readiness. So, yeah, good on you. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great history lesson, too. I had no idea. See, and for the kid who said he didn't like history. I love history now. History. Well, we love making history with you here, Chris Voss of the Chris Voss Show podcast. Uh, you can find more about uh, Chris and his show at thechrisvossshow.com. Of course, the book is Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's available wherever you get books. We'll have links to all of these and more that are connected with Chris and his, his makings in the show notes. So, Chris, thank you so much for being on Timeless Leadership. Thank you, Scott. And it's always an honor to hang out with you, man. You're just always awesome. Ah, you're very kind. Just as much as they've inspired, every leader has a responsibility to inspire others. As you've had your struggles, there are others out there who need the inspiration to overcome theirs. What will you do? Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.